In September of 2009, I was in a meeting with people who had committed to be a part of our first multi-site campus in Waterford. We got together not knowing what it would look like, how it would all work out, because it didn't exist yet. But we looked at the scriptures and we saw how Jesus did ministry, that he went to people where they are and he helped them know they matter to God. And we wanted to do ministry like that. We wanted to do that together. And so we got together and we prayed and we dreamed about what it could look like. And, and we knew we couldn't do it on our own. And that night in that first team meeting of our Waterford campus that was yet to be realized, I knew God was gonna build his church in this new way in new places. It wasn't a few months later when we had our first service in the South meeting room of the Herndon campus. It wasn't a few months after that when we went out to Lawton Childs Elementary School because the people that had committed to that team said, we can't be Summit Waterford if we're not out there. And it wasn't a few months after that when we opened our permanent facility that we've had for 10 years now and we're so blessed to have where so many people have been so faithful, have given and served so much. It was that very first night of that very first team meeting. That night I had prayed that 50 people would show up for that meeting. To that point, 29 people had committed to be a part of the team. And I was just praying, God, if 50 people would show up, we can turn the world upside down with 50 people out there. And so uh, I was bold and I was courageous and I set out 50 chairs uh, for that meeting. And before the meeting, before anybody showed up, I got there early and set the chairs out and I put my hand on each chair and prayed for the people that might sit in those chairs because that seemed like a pastory thing to do. I didn't know what I was doing. And we had this little registration table outside of the room where we were signing people in. If anybody new came, we wanted to get their information. And before long, a line started to form. And that line ended up going down the hallway of the Herndon campus, out into the lobby and almost to the front door. And I knew God was going to build his church in this new way, in new places. But it wasn't the number of people. It was when the 51st person walked into the room. When the 51st person walked into the room for that meeting, though at least the way I remember it is the first 50 people stood up in unison and gave their chairs away and went to go find more chairs for others. They gave up their comfort to invite other people in. And they set out chairs, they put out chairs for other people to be a part of what God was up to. That's when I knew. In this series, we're looking together at what connects us. We're looking at how a commitment to Christ connects us, how commitment to community connects us. And this week, we're going to look at how a commitment to a cause connects us. So what's that cause? Well, the New Testament describes it simply this way. Paul in Galatians says this, here's what matters now that your faith in who Jesus is be expressed in how you love God and love others. That's the cause that we share. That's what connects us. And so as we look at that shared cause today, I want us to keep this thought in mind and it'll run through our time together. A personal commitment to Christ can lead to a transformed community. I want us to look at Luke chapter eight together and, and this account of Jesus's interaction with someone in need. It's one of my favorite scriptures. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter eight, starting in verse 26, or if you have a Bible app, I would love for you to follow along. But as we read this, keep in mind, a personal commitment to Christ can lead to a transformed community. Let's read from Luke chapter eight together. They, Jesus and his followers, sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, 
he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains, and he was driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus, let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down a steep bank into a lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into a boat and he left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and he told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. Jesus and his followers go to the other side, the region of the Gerasenes. In the New Testament, uh, NIV version that we just read, it seems like Luke is giving us, the writer uh, is giving us geographic information. It's across the lake from Galilee. But if you read it in the original Greek, there's maybe something more going on. It says they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes which is opposite Galilee. This area was part of what was known as the Decapolis, the 10 cities. It was previously under the rule of Alexander the Great, part of the Greek empire. And and Jesus' time, it was under Roman rule. And it was a place of outsiders. It was opposite. There were some synagogues there, some Jewish people, but by and large, this was a Hellenistic place. Here's what that means. It was dominated by... uh, the thought that truth can only be found in the human mind and that pleasure and power were the goals of life. As you can imagine, that can lead to all types of mistreatment, particularly of the most vulnerable. And it stands opposite the worldview of Jesus. Jesus' worldview is that truth is found in the creator God and faithfulness to him is the goal of life. And we know based on the pigs in the story that these are not Jewish people that Jesus and his disciples are interacting with because the pigs would have been forgiven, for, uh, forbidden in the Levitical laws. So Jesus interacting in this place with the, these people is, is a sign. is a sign that he goes to the outsider, that he invites in those that are left outside, 
This place would have been detestable to Jewish people, from the people all the way to the pigs, but not for Jesus. He goes to those on the outside, and God's love is for all, and him being there is a clear statement of that. They go to this other side, this opposite side, and they find a man in a tomb, left for dead by his community. I don't know how you feel listening to this. I don't know if you feel like maybe there's too much of a mess in your life, that things can't work out in your life, that God can't fix this or that thing, but this guy was literally left for dead by his community. And the man identifies himself as legion, which is a word used to describe a a group of Roman soldiers. This is the man saying, I'm in a big struggle and I can't get out of it on my own. Jesus sees this herd of pigs and he orders uh, the demon to go into the pigs and the pigs go over the cliff. It's incredibly dramatic and it seems like a terrible waste of bacon if you ask me, but Jesus has flair and so that's what he does. He orders them to go over and this guy tending the pigs along with with his friends, he sees this and he runs back into town and and he says, you got to see what's going on. And so the people come out and they see what I, and I love this so much. They see the man sitting at Jesus' feet dressed and in his right mind. And the people, seeing this miracle, ask Jesus to leave. They tell him to leave out of fear because the power he has to change things isn't something it seems like they're all that interested in and, it's not, and they're not sure if they want that type of power in their lives. I mean, the town's economy had just gone over a cliff. Matthew Henry writes, the people of the town prefer their pigs above their savior and so come short of Christ and salvation through him. They see what Jesus can do and they say, no thanks. And so Jesus is packing up and this man who has just been freed from a legion of demons is desperate to go with Jesus and, and, he, and he says, uh, can, I, can I go with you please? Can I please go with you? And it makes so much sense. He'd been left for dead by his community. He'd been cast aside. He'd been chained by his community. And he says, I don't need them anymore. I just want to be with you. And he wants to go with Jesus. It makes so much sense. It's actually the same thing that Peter, James, and John are experiencing on uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. This is where Jesus uh, takes Peter, James, and John up to a hillside, and he's shown in his full glory. And Peter says, can we just uh, build a house here and stay here forever? It's good for us here. We don't ever want to leave. We don't ever want to move because it's good for us here. I don't want to leave this good moment. You ever feel like that? I mean, maybe somehow even now you've found something that that feels somewhat comfortable, some sense of balance, and you say, you know what, God, uh, thank you for the blessings. I want to just stay here. Please don't change anything for me. But Jesus often reminds us that our cause isn't inside. It's out there. Our cause is outside of ourselves. In this season, I think it's so easy for us to look out for number one. I mean, look at what happened uh, when, when uh, all, the, all the information about COVID came out in the early days and it was stay-at-home orders. Look at what happened to all the Lysol and the toilet paper at the grocery store. Gone, right? Guys, I'm still kind of upset about how we acted in that time. And I'm not saying you shouldn't care for yourselves. Uh, an uncared for you 
doesn't care well for the world. But what I'm saying is those stockpiles that we, that, that we uh, piled up in our house, they reveal how dedicated to ourselves that we can be and how fearful we can be of change and that we'll have enough when it comes down to it. So we get to a place that's good for us and we beg God, never, please don't change a thing. But what Jesus is saying to this man who was left behind, left for dead, and to his closest friends, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's saying to both, when you experience a spiritual high, he looks at us and he says, I'm freeing you from sin, from despair, from hopelessness, from brokenness, from insecurity for the sake of others. Your salvation isn't for you alone. It's to be shared with those who aren't yet free. So go back. Go tell all the good news you have to tell of all that God has done for you. And so the healed man goes back into his community and he told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. About 10 years ago, my family went back to Guatemala. Uh, Abby and I had, uh, in college, spent time working with some missionary friends there who run an orphanage and a school, uh, and my daughter is from there, so we spent time in Guatemala when we picked her up and brought her home. We love Guatemala, we love the people, we love the place, it's a beautiful place. And so about 10 years ago, we wanted to take my daughter back and the family back to see the beauty of the place. And the night before we got on the plane, my daughter was really excited. She was going back to the place she was born. She was really excited about it and she was having trouble sleeping. So I was back in her room and I said, if you can just rest now, it'll be a great day tomorrow. And she said, okay, I'll try. And then she said, hey, you know uh, what I'm gonna say when I get to Guatemala tomorrow? I said, no, what, Eden, what are you gonna say when you get to Guatemala tomorrow? She says, I'm gonna tell them I'm back. And I love that, as, as though the whole country was waiting for her return, the princess to return. Uh, and, and I loved that sentiment. Uh, I don't know if that's how this guy responded when he went back to his town, his community, like, hey, I'm back. I know you left me for dead. I know you chained me up, but I'm back. If you wonder if God can do big things, I'm back. I don't know if he responded that way. Uh, he probably didn't, actually. Because imagine what it cost him to go back. I mean, he was the naked crazy guy that had to be chained up. He was a dangerous guy that was better off living in a place for dead people than he was living in a community. There was risk going back. But he says, I'll go back anyway. I'll risk it. I'll risk the shame. I'll risk the embarrassment. I'll risk the rejection because I have good news to share. So he goes back. So what does this have to do with us? What does all of this have to do with us? Well, having been freed, and if you're a follower of Jesus and you've received his grace, you have been freed. You've been uh, brought from death to life, as Paul describes in, in Romans. Having been freed, the cause for you to take up, the cause for me to take up, the cause for us to take up is not to get to a place of physical and spiritual comfort as soon as possible. It's to imitate the Savior. And so what does Jesus do in this account? He goes to the other side. Do we? Do we cross lines? Or do we stay on our side? He also goes to the other side and, and he speaks love and freedom and new life. Do we? Do we speak love and freedom and new life or do we slip into cynicism and sarcasm? 
Do we go to the other side? And do we speak love and life? That's what it means to be a good news teller, by the way. Jesus, when he begins his ministry, says, repent and believe the good news. We're supposed to share that good news. Going to people where they are to help them know they matter to God is what we're supposed to be about. And when we do that, we're living in a way where we get to destroy and expose a lie that says people don't change. I don't know why we believe that lie. It's not true. We're resurrection people. This idea that people don't change just simply isn't true. And when we live in a way where we go to people where they are to help them know they matter to God, we get to expose that lie as we share our story. There's something really interesting about this region. This isn't the end of Jesus' time in this place. Jesus returned to the region of the Decapolis later in ministry. And it shows just how much when we're faithful to what we're called to, our cause together, just how much God can do with it. It's a really different experience for Jesus when he returns to this region and we have to turn to the other gospels to piece it together. Mark and Matthew tell us pieces of it, but we can get a fuller picture if we look at both. And it seems like maybe the account from Mark 7 and Matthew 15 are separate from what we just read but they're not. And they tell us so much about how a personal commitment to Christ can lead to a transformed community. Mark chapter 7 verse 31 says, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre. He went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of where? The Decapolis. He's returning. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hands on him. Matthew 15 tells us a little more. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, right where they found this previously demon-possessed man. And Jesus healed them. And the people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. The outsiders praised the God of Israel. Did you catch it? The man left for dead in a tomb, gets freed from a legion of demons by Jesus. And he wants to just sit at Jesus' feet, but Jesus sends him back into his community to be a good news teller, not just a good news experiencer. And he goes, he goes back into his community. And when Jesus crosses that sea again, when he comes back to the region again, when he goes to the other side again, people recognize him and they bring people to him. When Jesus came the first time in power, the people asked him to leave because they were scared. They were confused. They weren't sure they wanted the change Jesus came to bring. But the man went back into his community and being left for dead, now fully alive, he tells his story about how people who, who feel outside are loved by Jesus, about how people who are left for dead can be made alive by Jesus. He shares his hope and the fear and the confusion of the community turns to excitement and hope. When Jesus comes back, they don't ask him to leave. They invite him in and they bring others to him because one person was faithful. One person's faithfulness can change an entire place. He went into his community. He told his story to others and it changed that place and it changed those people. 
And so you may be saying that's such a good story and I love that Jesus can do that work, but I don't have a story like that. I don't have much to tell. Let me ask you this. Do you have any hope right now? I mean, in this time and place, do you have any hope at all? And does that hope that you have, does it have anything to do with who Jesus is and what he has done? If you shared that hope, the answer is yes, and you shared that hope. It could change the trajectory of people's lives. The commentator, uh, Eugene Boring, says of this account that this is an exorcism turned missionary story. That's all of us who follow Jesus. It's all an exorcism turned missionary story. Your hope shared with others could change the trajectory of people's lives. That is not hyperbolic. It's a biblical fact. So you, having been freed, it's important that you recognize that there are some needs only you can meet. There are some hands only you can hold. There are some people only you can reach. Do you care enough about the hope that you have in Christ to move toward the people God has given you to love? Do you serve the needs of the people around you in hopes that as the scriptures promise, they'll see your good deeds and they'll praise your Father in heaven? Is us being at the feet of Jesus enough for us? Or should we be bringing others closer to him? Do we stay quiet, satisfied with what Jesus has done for us? Or do others need to hear of the hope we have in Jesus and all that he's done for us? Do we? love God with uh, everything in, in our heart, all the, the hope we can muster? Do we love him with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, all the strength that we can put together and love our neighbor as ourselves? That's what we're called to do. And our cause is to make Jesus known to the people we know in word and in deed. That's how we make our faith expressed in love because a personal commitment to Christ can lead to a transformed community. And let me just say, uh, I know this is risky. I know it is. I know it was risky for uh, the man who had been freed to go back to his community. It'll be risky for us. There's always risk involved. I don't want to be seen as, as someone uh, who, who's, who's kind of odd and out there. I, I don't want to be rejected by the people that are close to me. I get that, that risk and change is hard for some people. Some people are built for it. Some people aren't. I'm a little more of a risk taker. Uh, let me give you an example. The other day, I bought a new face wash. Uh, and I know that sounds like I maybe are making that up just uh, to have an illustration, but I'm 40 years old and I'm still susceptible to breakouts. And so I appreciate you letting me be vulnerable about that. But I bought a new face wash uh, and I looked on the back at the directions because I guess that's what you do when you're 40 years old and you buy a face wash. You look at the directions. It's like, just wash your face. I think we, but anyway, I was looking at the directions and I saw it said, use this face wash two to three times a week. But again, I'm a risk, change, risk taker. I'm a, I'm a, uh, uh, I'm crazy this way. And so sometimes I wash my face with this face wash four times, sometimes five times a week. Again, I'm a risk taker. You can't put me in a box. But I know not everybody is that type of risk taker. Some of us don't like change. Some of us don't like to take risks like that. So what's my advice for you if you're not a risk taker? You hear all this, you want all this. It's like, yeah, I would love to be bold and courageous and go and share my story, but I, I don't like taking risks like this. Here's what I would say. Realize that everything's already different. 
that on a daily basis at this point, you are experiencing uh, radical change and, and taking risks. And so are your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and your family. And right now the world is asking really important questions, the most important questions. What matters? What can I have hope in? And I think we have an opportunity in this time, in this place, to see the gospel come to life in people's lives and for their sake that we might not have when everything is going as expected. I mean, what if God doesn't want you to get back to normal? The man who was freed from the demons, his life didn't get back to normal. It changed radically. What if he wants you to go into your community, open up space for others in in your life, in your home, in the sharing of hope? And guys, ownership is everything in this. My family, uh, we cook together a lot as a family. And I can tell you there's very often a direct relationship between how much my kids like the food we cook and how much they participate in making it. It's one thing to observe. It's a very different thing to take ownership of something. And this vision that God has given our church in part to reach people that are far from God with the hope and the help of the gospel, it is not best observed and agreed with as an ideal. It is best owned and lived out personally. It's one thing to say, uh, I want to get in shape. It's another thing to go work out. The decision is important, but the action is crucial. One of my favorite memories of those early days of the Waterford campus, when we were in Lawton Childs Elementary School, when we worshiped there on Sunday, And we worshiped in an elementary school cafeteria. It wasn't a great place. There were two columns in the middle of the room, which made the seating arrangement weird. It always smelled kind of like bleach and pizza, which was an odd combination. It was dark. It was, the ceilings were low. It wasn't a great place to worship. But one of my favorite things to do was to stand in the back of the room, sometimes even after the service had started, for as long as I possibly could, until I had to get up on stage and watch people come in the room. They would come in from the sides, And in those days, there were 129 of us, uh, to be exact, that were part of uh, the the team, part of this this new church. And I every week would see one of those 129 people or more walking down the hall, someone I knew with someone I didn't know. And it meant people were inviting others in, not because it was easy to worship, not because it was uh, the best, most comfortable place to worship, but because God was doing something, at least in part through their community of faith. And they said, well, I want you to be a part of this with me. I loved seeing that. And if you hear that story and it sounds like a bit of nostalgia, like a story from some other time, it's possible that you're not seeing people the way Jesus does. We always want to be a people that invite more in. We don't want to look around and say, I think some it's good enough. Now we can just move on. We always want to invite people in. We don't want to say we're done. So what if God wants you in this time and in this place to go to the other side, to go into your community, into your relationships and open up space for others? Who do you need to put a chair out for? Who do you need to invite in to the way you worship so that people might get closer to Jesus? 
I can't answer those questions for you. I can't fill in those blanks for you, but I can tell you from the scriptures and from experience, God can use individual faithfulness to bring hope and light into the world in new ways and in new places. And if we commit to this together, if we commit to having our faith being expressed in loving God and loving others, if we say, I want to be about this work, it will change our hearts, but it will change our community as well. And with that, I want to pray because I don't think we can be about this work, this big work that Jesus has for us without him. And so pray with me. Father God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you go to the other side. Thank you that you send us out with a cause to bring your good news to others. Help us be available to you. Help us remember that our cause is outside of ourselves. Help us pursue together being good news tellers, not just good news experiencers. Help us be good for this world and pointing others to you so that others can hear and experience your hope and your grace. It's in the powerful and redemptive name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.